Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. How are you doing? All right. How are you? Doing pretty good. Uh, driving around. I... Driving around, okay. It's all started, so. Mm. Usual day. Yeah, it is a nice day over here, too. So, ready for the topic? Mm -hmm. So, I believe the goal was for you to help me understand, perhaps help yourself understand, what exactly do you believe? Ah, uh, yes. What do I believe? Uh, To be honest, you know, I was uh, I didn't do my homework. Let's put it that way. But uh, you know, I I have core beliefs anyway. And, uh, oh, maybe as a as a segue, you know, I'm going to uh -huh. uh, I'm, I'm going to group therapy, and ah. they yeah, and we touch on the subjects of uh, of the subject of core beliefs. But their idea, the idea in there, wasn't. It, it was most like uh, your core beliefs as uh, you think people look at you. So this is more externally determined than internal. Internal. So there, yeah. Let me see. So I have. Yeah, like there are beliefs that are that say I'm I'm not worth anything. I. Um, I am a loser. Uh, mm. like that. I get so from a uh, therapeutic perspective, the beliefs that uh, shape your behavior or your relationship, something like that. Yeah, and and that's why I was confused because they said, "Oh, probably, oh yeah, I know what that is," but then no, it wasn't because my core beliefs are more like what I believe about myself not what people think about myself. Well, you know, the goal would be to make those match, right? Uh, you know, like I'm truthful and I'm honest. Now, if I say that those are core beliefs of mine, then I have to prove to people that I adhere to the beliefs that I, that I say I do, I have. If you don't, yeah. then you are not authentic and, you know, you're fake. So, uh -huh. yeah, I believe in the core beliefs, similar to how companies or organizations set up mission statements, right? Uh, a bunch of sort of aspirational beliefs. Yes, yes, and uh, you know the 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 idea is to always strive to meet them, right? So that you, you know you know that you're in, on the right path. Uh, mm -hmm. But when you uh, you know, deviate from that. Uh, people will, and you don't acknowledge that. You know, it's it's okay if you deviate, but you have a, a reason. Um, so let me see. Okay, the core beliefs that uh, you know uh, we analyzed is like helpless core beliefs, unlovable core beliefs, and worthless core beliefs. So in the first set, in the hopeless core beliefs, we have. I am incompetent, I am ineffective, 
I can't do anything. I'm helpless. Unlovable, we have I'm unlovable, I'm unlikable, I am different. Uh, oh, yeah, it, for example, in the I am unlovable, we have two columns. We have. No, no, forget that. It's just one. I thought it was two different groups, two different types, but no. Uh, in the worthless problems, we have I'm unacceptable, I am bad, I am awake. So, these uh, beliefs that I, you know, uh, so in, in therapy right. just as a, are. This is yeah. an interesting side note uh, before you go on. I think those are really interesting. They, uh, there's a book uh, I read a long time ago called The Sensation of Being Somebody. And it posits that the three core needs of a human being are belonging, worthiness, and competence. And it sounds very similar to this framework is that these are the beliefs we have that we don't deserve to belong, or we are unworthy, or we are incompetent or useless. So I think it's a fairly common and powerful framework for thinking through identity. But yes, I'll add that to the show notes. But keep going. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so in during that session, I was like, uh, oh yeah, well, my core beliefs are these, you know, things. Uh, you know, I believe in science. I believe in truth. But you know, they were not. You know, I was. Yeah, I was. Oh well, yeah, those are good aspirational beliefs. But we're talking about core beliefs. So we have two ideas of what core beliefs are. So I guess. Um, we are, or at least I'm thinking of core beliefs as, like I said, those aspirational beliefs, things that uh, uh, you want to accomplish, even if uh, you know that it's impossible, you still want to strive for that, right? So that's, you know, mm -hmm. that's how companies set yeah, up sales. The term aspirational values versus operational values. Mm -hmm. so the operational values are what people see you doing now the aspirational values are where you want to get to or what you would like to be known for. Correct. Yeah. And uh, I think with those two types, you want to be, you want the operational values to follow the uh, aspirational ones, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That we need some sort of system for helping our training our operational values to match our aspirational values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so what do I believe? Uh, what are my core beliefs? Well, it's uh, well, one of the main ones is uh, justice. In that, you know, yes, in that, you know, we, this is what I think got me in this path. You know, for years you see injustices, you see women being raped in all kinds of places, including the military, which is terrible. Uh, the treatment that they get, in, or they they used to get in some uh, activity in Las Vegas, you know, the airman, you know, that became officer or something, kind of like, uh, uh, you know, abused or, or not yeah. well, not physical, but almost physical, you know, harassed the women airmen. Harassment, yeah. I was, yeah, I don't know what, I don't remember the name, but that is terrible. How can an organization like that permit? This kind of it sanctioned this kind of activities. I think they, you know, they have changed a little bit, but for years it was like, yeah, that's normal. Yeah, we, we just harass women because that's fun. But, you know, so that's not 
that's you know, these women are also airmen. They also went to whatever training they go through. They also suffer the same, uh, go through the same risks, including losing their lives. And but because of because they're women, they are allowed. You know, women men are allowed to harassment. That is not justice. That is not just. So that's so let's, let's put this, so let me kind of just repeat back, okay, I think it's an important thing. So justice, the decision you're talking about is in some sense that um, kind of equal treatment under the law that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or do not do to others what you would not want them to you. And mm -hmm. that there should be a sort of a common standard for judging behavior and just because of the color of your skin and your gender or other things. You should not have to suffer uh, indignities others don't suffer. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Then uh, we have uh, um, trust. We have mm -hmm. trust. Yes, we have. You know, if I put my trust in you, or or no, you earn. There are two ways to to get trust. One is of out of your position. You're my father, you're my mother, you're my boss. So they get a level of implicit trust because of mm -hmm. the position that they hold, you know, you trust that they do the right thing. But then there's the personal trust. You know, there, there's, the, there's the trust that I put on you because you have earned that trust. So you can be my boss, but then if you, you know, do, uh, uh, you know, give me a bad review for no reason, and that reduces my personal trust in you. Uh, and uh, yeah, as a boss, as the, as the position you still, that person still has that level of trust. That, but as you betray that trust, and as you betray my personal trust, then that gets reduced. And All right, so let's, I, let's, um, let me just define some terms just to make sure I'm following you. So uh, maybe a better term than beliefs might be value. These are things, and the best definition I heard of value is things we want more of. That we're willing to give up other things in order to get more of this thing. So, for example, if you have a value of justice, you'll say, I'm okay firing a really competent general who's abusive towards women and soldiers because he is acting unjustly. And I'm willing to give up some efficiency. This is the whole thing that Uber went through. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't yeah. fire that person because that would, you know, that's, you know, our value is growth at all costs. Right. So making these value statements is, I think, implying a set of trade-offs. So I think justice is something we want more of. Trust mm -hmm. is probably not the right word because you don't want people to trust more. You want people to be more trustworthy, perhaps. Yes, that's exactly. But then, you, you, but that's a value would be trustworthiness. Yes, but I I think I I can still view it as two as two uh, facets because um, mm, well let's take our president for example like uh, the president is supposed to be the president of the whole country right that's what the well there's says. many different schools of thought on that one but that's certainly I think a more uh, just uh, uh, and what you what you mean by that but so. It's just to say that many people have had the idea that um, the president should at least appear to act as if he's considered. Sorry, that, that a so um, 
anything involving Trump is complicated, but let's say what you mean by um, the, to the, the point that we that the people of America want to be able to trust that the president has considered their opinions and feelings, even if he doesn't agree with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's is, is that yeah? You want to trust that that he isn't just writing you off entirely. Exactly. Even if you disagree exactly. with them. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that's a, the, the yeah. So that's a level of uh, uh, what is you said uh, not trust or something else. Well, yeah, trust. Right. There's, there's, that. there's also a, a related word which is responsibility. To say that the president has a responsibility to consider the interests of the population as a whole, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. not quite the same as trust, but it's closely related. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, uh, oh, and it's, a, it's another segue, but uh, you know, as, as a system of government, we say um, uh, accountability. Like, so you have the mm-hmm. responsibility of doing something, but you should also be accountable to whatever happens, right? And we have seen right. this individual uh, uh, glorify his responsibility when things go right. Like, I did it. This is my doing. I am. The, I am the one. But when things go wrong, there's always people. Who, uh, the blame is never on him. It's always on other people. <laughs> Someone said, uh, I heard a great phrase once, success has many fathers, failure is always an orphan. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's just... I think this ties very well into your meta point uh, that we should should want to be in a system where our operational values are continually being evaluated so that we are being held accountable moving towards our aspirational values. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then with, yeah. uh, and when you see people or entities, organizations that are true to their values, that, you know, through their operational values, they represent that through their activities, they represent those values, then, you know, you, you want to be associated with them somehow. When you see entities that betray those values, that you know, from the uh, outside, they seem um, friendly, and they seem that they're uh, they, they put their customer welfare as you know the first thing. But in reality, you see that that is not true. Then those are untrustworthy entities. Yeah. So they here's a, here's a, yeah. Here's the interesting word, uh, which is in the same space, uh, which is the word responsiveness. And the idea there is when an organization or entity is made known uh, that when you point out to them that their uh, behavior is not matching their values, that rather than acting defensively and denying Mm -hmm. it um, or even reactively and just panicking, that they act responsibly. They say, ah, and I feel like you actually did a great job of modeling last week is that you were responsive those things being pointed out and it's interesting because there's sort of a complex of related virtues around responsiveness responsibility accountability and trust 
I'm not sure what the right word for all that is, but I think it's a really powerful um, value and something I agree we need more of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, during the uh, Me Too situation, which has kind of waned, but when it was, uh, um, you know, starting or getting big, there was this, uh, what's his name? The Minnesota comedian who was a senator, too. His name. Al Franken? Al Franken, yes. So, yeah. you know, he was a person, he's a person that I, uh, you know, well, I like his work, his comedic work, and I also uh, like his uh, political work. Uh, the, what he did and what, what there was a picture of, uh, it it wasn't that terrible, but it was it was not good. He was a uh, picture, you know, kind of making fun of a woman while she was uh, asleep. Uh, they claimed that it was uh, a, a skit that she was participating in that she was, you know, aware of. But you know, it, the picture is pretty damning. So because there were other persons, and and this is political. Everything is political. So there were all all these, uh, or a few Republican persons that were caught up, caught up in that, and a few rich people, you know, uh, that were abusive. So myself being on the Democratic side, I'm actually on the progressive super left side, but being part of that cohort, I was, uh, you know, uh, trouble, confused. Uh, like, Al Franken is great, but he did this. And so, you know, a, a lot of people attribute this to Democratic try to appear really clean. So you want to be, okay, our values is we don't accept that. So it, you know, like your example of the general, this person, no matter how great he is, has to go. Uh, so we, and I think we did that because on the Republican side, on the other side, it's, you see a lot of times that, you know, people do stuff like this and they just, you know, it's a locker room talk. It's just men, we men, boys, we be boys, blah, blah, blah. We right. to, you know, let it go. But we went <coughs> no, on the credit. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it used to be the, the, the Republicans were the moralistic party and the Democrats were more indulgent. And it seems to have flipped in, in many dimensions over the last few decades. And of course, Trump throws everything out the window, as usual. Um, but yeah, so the point is, is that, you know, and even there, though, you know, uh, it's interesting. And I think the word responsive is an important one because um, there's, um, I think, two unhealthy extremes. One is where you cover up someone's sin because you don't want to lose their benefit. The other is, as soon as there's a whiff of scandal, you crucify the person accused in order to just make the organization feel better, regardless of either A, how true the accusations are, and B, uh, trying to redeem or you know, help the person uh, you know, deal with whatever their inner demons are. And so, it's a it's a challenging yeah because you like it's a, it, you know it's always good to have values but then actually how you implement those values is in some ways um, more telling. Yes, and it's a big test of something. I don't know what to call it, but it's, it's a 
you know, you say you want to you do this, you say you, you believe in this thing. And but when you fail, uh, yeah, I read that it's, it's called out, being authentic or not being authentic. But I think it's... Well, yeah, I, I, another word, it's kind of old-fashioned these days, but the word is character. It's just a character. Mm-hmm. Are you actually uh, trying to do the right thing and do right by uh, everyone, the accused and the accuser, the individual and the organization, insiders and outsiders? And it is surprisingly difficult to come up with a set of values uh, that uh, actually um, balances those in a healthy way. Um, but, uh, you know, this is a good starting point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, another story I want to share about justice and I'm going back but this is one of the things that uh, really touched me and uh, really affected me uh, uh, in the last few weeks so uh, here I am in you know former military people that have um, you know falling in trouble Um, but you know on on the path to recovery Uh, I met this great uh, funny woman who had been incarcerated for 25 years and, and she just got out and she's going through a, a rehabilitation or an acclimation process you know being yeah. in jail in prisons for so long you know you have yeah. to change your mindset so uh you know i asked her why did you go into jail for, for such a long time well i killed my husband and she told me, well, and her husband was a big, you know, bodybuilder and famous and, you know, uh, if, let's, let's say he was like Arnold Schwarzenegger being uh, killed mm-hmm. by his wife. So, mm-hmm. uh, and the reason that she did that is uh, that he was abusing her and she, he was, mm-hmm. um, and, and she had gone to, uh, you know, all the processes of, you know, hey, He's abusing me. I went to the I went to hospital, I have pictures, all that stuff. She did that. She got all that evidence. Yet uh she was accused of just murdering her murdering him. And, well, I well, think, she did. and she did actually murder she so she killed him, but I guess she yeah. was it was considered murder rather than say self defense or just exactly. homicide. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, people in the uh, in the prosecutors and, and people in the government, they kind of like this guy, right? And and they they express, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's so terrible. And you know, they were uh, uh, you know just saddened or whatever. Um, so she got no uh, real uh, no mitigating beat. circumstances. Yeah, yeah, they didn't consider anything like that, or maybe they did, but yeah. they just put it. Um, yeah. So if you if you wanna reduce you know murders right, well we have to yeah. address the the causes like uh, you know the causes was abuse. She tried she did all that she could to get the uh, agencies to help. They didn't, and when she had to act to the to the uh, defend her life, uh, uh, you know the, the the law the law doesn't help her. The law says no. You're gonna have you want to spend twit, I don't know, like a third of your life in jail for doing this. Yeah. So that is. Yeah. Just, it, mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, well, it seems 
totally seems unfair, right? And, mm-hmm. and this is one of the problems with there's two issues and challenges here. One is that uh, any system of justice, you see the idea of false negatives and false positives mm-hmm. in statistics or filters, right? Is that any system has false positives and false negatives, and often the systems are highly biased in one direction or another. Um, the other thing that's really challenging, uh, I was reading a book on empathy, mm-hmm. which is you know one of my values is empathy. But at the very last chapter, she said the thing about empathy is that um, in practice, it is highly asymmetric. Is that when you hear a story, depending on which side you hear the story from, uh, your sympathy tends to go one day. Like if I heard someone said, oh, you know, my uncle was this rich, famous bodybuilder, and he was a politician, did all this good, was involved in all this charity work, and he met this woman from a poor background, and he gave her this beautiful house, this beautiful life, and she turned around and killed him. Mm. You know, I would have all my sympathy would be on the bodybuilder because of the version of the story I'd heard. Uh, but then it's like, well, wait, you know, and this, and this is the problem with, you know, trying to implement these systems is that uh, it's really hard to, like, you know, when we talk about, you know, soldiers who are sexual predators, you know, it's easy to hate on them. But it's also saying, well, you know, these people have been, you know, under all sorts of psychic distress. And, you know, I have a friend who is an ex-military person who was involved in some sexual impropriety. And I feel like, you know, what he did was a bad thing. But, man, he was so traumatized and the circumstances were so brutal. And some of the people involved were not really being honest. And it's like, the hard person to have sympathy for, but I do, right? And um, I guess the thing that I think most of us, is we want justice, but we also want something else, right? We don't want to just be judged by the letter of the law. We want something like mercy or grace or redemption or compassion. I don't even know what it is. Um, and those are often intention. Uh, because uh, is someone really showing, like, you know, in, in uh, recent times, we had this situation where uh, the Stanford student uh, who was an Olympic swimmer, mm. and, um, you know, he was very white, very cute, and very promising, and so he got off with, like, a reprimand. Whereas, it, you know, the the common the common uh, conversations in my circles were if she, if he had been a black man who did this he'd be in jail for twenty years mm-hmm. uh, and so it's like well you know I'm sure his family appreciated the fact that they looked at the and you know but you know and, and these things are all hard and the problem is we all have and you know interestingly what happened next was that that judge got recalled. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a big movement saying, well, it's not really fair to recall a judge who's just following the law and using discretion. But there was also, the, you know, the, the counter argument as well. There's a sense of community outrage is that, well, that's not fair. That's not the right balance of values. And we need to punish the judge. And so, um, you know, the, uh, and, you know, you can, uh, it's easy to pick a side and say, well, yeah, of course, the judge had to go. That was really appropriate. But that's based on the very small set of facts that I paid attention to. And is it possible that if I paid attention to more facts, I might have had a different, more nuanced? Um, you know, there's all those 
questions that are hard. So, yeah, and so there's there's another value in there somewhere you know, beyond just justice and accountability. Yeah, is I, I you know I believe in the, uh, if there is something that you own, right? That you know it's part is is part of you makes you you is your body. You know your body is like your your ultimate home. That's where your mm -hmm. mind is. That's where that's what makes you do things. So somebody who decides to invite invade your body, it's uh it's an attacker it's like uh, you know uh, you you have no right people have no right to invade my my body right people have no no okay. right to uh, uh, assault me or you know sodomize me or insert a knife into me or excuse me they they don't have a right unless i'm doing something terrible right because i'm doing i'm acting in a terrible way or somewhere else uh unless i'm doing that then no you shouldn't uh, inv invade my own body without uh, a reason, and we have levels of that, right? That we have, yeah. you know, people. Hey, you need to wear a mask because we want to. If you are infected of this uh, uh, corona of this uh, virus, uh, a mask will help to help uh, reduce the chance that others catch that. And because of the nature of the thing, you know, you don't know if you have it. And you can have it for like a couple of weeks and more and not show any symptoms, but still disperse that, you know, you could be harming other people knowingly, but you could, right? So as a citizen, I have the right to always be safe, to be breathing, to not be breathing uh, viruses that you could. That's one right. But then there's the other side. I have the right not to have to wear a thing on my face that hurts me or that makes me uncomfortable. So balancing those things requires uh, a lot of information so that people know how this thing uh, acts and how to defend each other. You know, if no matter how many. And a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of things are based on probabilities and predictions and estimates of the future, mm -hmm. right? And those are always difficult because. Uh, it is possible to uh, yeah, uh, all predictions of the future are based on the biases and models and theories we bring. There's never like one right, obviously right answer. There's just sort of who you trust and what your prior experiences are. Mm -hmm. Can you get on the other side, Ron? Right. So, uh, yeah, let, let me talk a little bit there. Um, so, uh, what is it? Yeah, information. People should know that, uh, you know, stopping the spread of this virus is a priority. But, you know, we have views that people don't trust our leaders, you know, and they say, you know, I am free, I can do anything I want. And there's the other ones who do worry about people. Uh, and, you know, that worry is not necessarily selfish. I mean, I don't want you to get sick because I don't want to get sick. Because, you know, you might go through right. some some activity outside, and then you bring that here to me, and then you put me at risk. So we have to, like, uh, uh, trust, trust in the information that we are fed, right?
Well, but I think what you, I think what you probably want the virtue there is the value there is truth. You truth, want yes. people. You want to have reliable truth, right? It's similar to the issue of trust. Mm-hmm. You don't just want people to believe. You want them to maybe another word is healthy trust. Yes. Right. You would like people to trust those who deserve trust to the extent they deserve trust, and distrust those who don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. It's interesting. Trust and truth are definitely related, possibly even etymologically. And then another virtue you said, uh, value that you brought up, was this issue of concern for other people, which I think mm-hmm. is related to your definition of justice in terms mm-hmm. of valuing other people. Um, and so there's a, a um, because you know there are many cultures which have had a very strict insider-outsider distinction. We talked about this. We were talking about societies and villages, and like you know, villages had a lot of solidarity, but at the price of being extremely xenophobic towards outsiders. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can build a really strong, healthy community uh, by that works through its own issues that it has a great deal of social value precisely because it's so antagonistic towards those outside. Uh, there's a wonderful phrase a friend of mine, a new friend of mine taught me today, which is the difference between uh, bounded communities and centered communities. So bounded community, the most important question is who's in and who's out. Mm-hmm. And if you're on the inside, you get all these benefits on your outside, uh, you are anathema. And the uh, that boundary is really powerful and useful. The alternative is what he called um, a centered community. And a good example is that, in, for example, in a in software world, there is a corporate project where it's really clear line. If you're inside Google, you can access all the source code. And if you're outside of Google, you have access to none of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in, say, the open source world, it's much more of a centered community. It's like, you know, anyone can participate and there's a sliding scale from people who are kind of in the core uh, and very high commitment, high involvement, high impact, high value through all sorts of other more peripheral involvement. And the point this friend was making is that in a, you know, if you're trying to build something that is organic and growing, it, is that if you have, a bounded community, you inevitably get hierarchy because you have to have someone to be able to make the call on who's in and who's out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a centered community, the only thing that works is some sort of collaborative leadership. Uh, but then mm-hmm. you know, it makes hard questions. Like, for example, there was a really tragic situation where there was a, uh, a security researcher uh, who was being investigated, I think it was Aaron Schwartz. And uh, he got investigated by the CIA or something, and he committed suicide. Hmm. And the thing is, he wasn't a student, he wasn't faculty, but there was still a general sense at MIT that, like, this person, you know, something horrible happened to him, and um, it doesn't seem right. You know, whose fault is it? Or are we responsible? And so there was a long community process, which I think they handled fairly well, uh, which said, you know, um, we obviously can't, you know, invest as much proactively on people who are not 
students or faculty or staff. Um, and you know, even his friends weren't were divided on beforehand whether MIT should have gotten involved on his behalf. Um, but it does feel like, you know, MIT could you know, do things like taking this progress. So there's always going to be these weird boundary conditions where, I mean, basically we're, we're facing that in the U.S. all the time about uh, undocumented immigrants. Mm. It's like, well, uh, it does feel like, on the one hand, that they shouldn't have all the same rights as citizens, you know, just, you know or, or immigrants who've gone through all the processes and uh, work. On the other hand, it feels like we shouldn't treat them like they don't exist. And those are always hard questions. And the more you get away from boundaries and the more towards trying to be centered, the harder those questions become. Um, but I think that, you know, I think there's a, there's a, a value you have of universality is that you don't really like having these hard boundaries of who's in and who's out uh, or world with different classes of people. At some level, you would like, we should really be trying to figure out how to do something that benefits everyone. And that, you know, yeah, there's going to be some distinctions here and there. But uh, in fact, let's get to this issue of omniculturalism that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Uh, I incorrectly used the term panculturalism, which means something slightly different. But the idea there should be some common culture and some common humanity that we all value and that we all try to agree applies to everyone, uh, even if we have different microcultures and organizations within that, which have their own peculiar uh, you know, benefits and responsibilities. Yeah, it's like a family. You know, you have uh, members that are, you know, super smart, others that are not so smart, others that are funny, others that are very serious all the time. But, you know, it's family and you accept them and you deal with them, you know. Yeah, but you know, uh, even there, you know, there's my nuclear family, there's my in-laws, there's my cousins, there's my Indian culture, second cousins, third cousins. And, like, they're still family, but there's a difference. Different mm -hmm. degrees of connectedness. Exactly, different degrees. And, uh, you know, uh, people have their own beliefs, but, you know, still relate. You know, there are still things that bring them together, you know, that center them, I mm -hmm. guess. Uh, so uh, we could have that uh, type of situation. You know, you have multiple uh, groups, communities, organizations that, you know, they have, the, you know, they have central values, and then they have they have their own internal values. But they, you can still, because of the central values, you can still relate with each other. You can still um, interact with them uh, and, and participate in, you know, the general benefit for all the communities that are, that are centered like that. So um, Yeah, and, that's, and the hard part is, you know, what is the, it's easy to have an aspirational hmm. thing, but the hard part is how do you, uh, operationalize that in a way that people perceive as legitimate. Uh, I think I told you about this book by Neil Stevenson, The Diamond Age. The Diamond uh, Age. Where, yeah, so he imagines the future world, he wrote this in the 1990s, where there's this thing called the Common Economic Protocol uh, that sort of all, the nation state has been obliterated because uh, cryptography and secure transactions have eliminated taxation. Uh, but what happens is, is that people fragmented into these different tribes. So you have the Mormons, and you have the anarchists, and you have the Victorians. And 
and they do that each tribe has their own region where they control the norms and the values of who lives there and how they behave and some like the boars are very strict and very racist and some are much more uh flexible um but then there's kind of this uh universal the one level the sort of this universal code that they all agree to is that these crimes like physically attacking someone you know has consequences regardless and can be uh enforced in a uniform manner but and that you're not allowed to enforce your rules on other people. Uh, but then within your own tribe, you can have all sorts of sanctions because people are sort of uh, bought into it. And it does feel like an, a purely economic union is unrealistic, but it's also the easiest to imagine. It's like you said, you know, if you cause me physical harm, I think there's a rule is if you cause someone physical harm or harm their ability to engage in productive economic activity, then that is covered under the economic protocol. But anything else is, you know, really up to the file, the, the individual sects or tribes. And then, you know, they have to be clear, tribes have to be clear about if, if you go into their region, you know, what rules are uh, expected of foreigners. And, you know, uh, anyway. And the system, even in the book, is unstable in various ways. Mm. Um, and it's about actually, it was written in the 1990s, and it's about the industrialization of China and how China and its uh, alternate future is um, uh, sort of being uh, diminished by the, the implicitly centralized structures protocol, and they're trying to bootstrap a totally decentralized. Uh, alternative and so yeah and, and that's the thing is that you know um, having a truly virtuous shared uh, system is a good thing uh, non-virtuous the very fact of it being global makes it uh, that much more damaging to those who are marginalized So, right, so just to kind of sum up some of the virtues we've talked about was universality, especially around justice mm -hmm. and compassion. We talked about uh, this interesting complex of truth, trust, accountability, responsibility, but then also kind of the counterpoint of responsiveness, redemption, and grace. And by the way, that's actually the hardest thing about building a system of justice is that in order to not be cruel in the level, we talked about this before, it'd be nice to think about a deterministic justice system, mm -hmm. but you also, you also want it to be humane. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is one person's humane compassion is another person's cowardly um, abdication of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Right, you know, in the case of your friend who, you know, killed her husband for being abused, it's like, well, um, you know, it, you have all 25 years, seems like it's overly harsh, but probably getting her, you know, having her go away without any consequence whatsoever seems unusually lenient, right? Because mm -hmm. someone did actually die, you know? And so, um, 
where does one draw the line? And you know, uh, and who gets to draw that line? And how accountable are they? Right? Right. Uh, like our friend the Stanford Flores judge. And mm-hmm. I don't know any way around that other than by creating better human beings and better cultures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there is actually another point, though, is uh, that we also touched upon was this issue of truth, which I think independent of questions of trust uh, is a, an interesting value to have mm-hmm. uh, of creating systems. Uh, we talked about this before of how you know somebody is the best antiseptic, but if we create systems of, uh, that make it easier for truth to win out, like the scientific revolution did, like the internet did. You know, even the, the vast amounts of abuse and misinformation and manipulation, it's still way better than the days when there were three media executives who could decide everything. And if you were, you know, a friend of one of those executives, nothing you ever did wrong would ever be known to anyone. Exactly. It's like the story of, uh, what is the, well, there were two big, uh, you know, newsmen back in the 1920s or something like this. Uh, mm-hmm. I forgot the name. But uh, uh, Orswell, you know, the movie maker, the movie producer, he made a movie, and uh, the, the 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 person, oh, oh the, the the object of the movie was this big mogul, big newsman, big person. And he's like, okay, you're making this movie. I don't want I don't want people to look at it. So I'm not going to publish it in my in my newspaper. So you know, that, um, so he he you know try to stop something that was you know uh, trip, you know falls under freedom of speech and all that stuff. You know, can make a movie and and you know publish it. But he had so much power with that newspaper that he could uh, reduce or. or the the possibility of people finding out, but you know, there's the story ends with all world uh, did you know some sort of like word of mouth that thing, and the movie was uh, published, you know, not to big audiences, but because of the uh, the the obstacle that this the uh, the subject of the movie put, but you know, it still got published. So. Uh, in the internet, we have something similar to that, but bigger, right? You have uh, uh, ways of getting direct information from individuals or, or entities. You know, you can get what they purport to be truth, right? But it is so easy for another entity to spouse uh, uh, untruth, people, things that are not true, but that some people are receptive to. Uh, they, you know, use uh, uh, prejudice and racism, or you know, on the other side, if you use uh, being green, you know, they want to save the world uh, and do things. But even the, the entities that purport to be for the for the earth, they engage in activities that are not good. You know, they engage in uh, bombing. And, and uh, things like that that are not good. But all of that, you know, the consumer of information is being put in a delicate situation. They, uh, 
even if they have values, right? People can use those values to get to their to their to their mind. And they keep doing that, feeding them information that uh, guides them towards uh, a result. You know, we see that experiment with Facebook, you know, when they uh, gave some information to some set of people and they it was you know proven that they could change how, the way that they vote. So uh, why why is that? Well, they trust Facebook. The information came through Facebook, and uh, uh, they were able to do that. That's how uh, you know uh, misinformation you know disseminates. It's so easy for people to you know forward a tweet or a message. Look at this. This is so terrible. Let's forward it. But they don't investigate where that information came from. Is this a real entity? Is it a bot? We have you know we have. So much yeah, I think we think about yeah. So, uh, one consequence of that is any individual entity is generally less trustworthy because they're less visible, right? If you have a single highly visible entity, there's at least some level of scrutiny and accountability, like the local newspaper or the national news. But mm -hmm. the uh, the flip side, though, is that it is easier to cross-check multiple sources to get more accurate. So. The naive view of truth is less reliable than in the old days, but the sophisticated view of truth is much more reliable because you're exposed to much more divergent viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the interesting thing about values, right? I think that because of these other values, we have a virtue of decentralization, uh, that we want to see more resilient, decentralized systems because concentrations of power, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. But the... Uh, flip side of that is uh, you lose efficiency, right? You can't just watch the three news networks and know exactly what's going on. You have to spend all this more messy effort and there's a lot more misinformation. And the other thing I think that uh, is hard for people who didn't grow up in the day to appreciate is that uh, truth is more like uh, an adaptive emergent thing like health in a body is you don't just have a nice rigid measure of truth like we do for measuring the second or the meter or the kilogram. Uh, it's a constantly evolving adaptive thing that has antibodies and viruses attacking it all the time and mm. it's fighting back and forth. So, mm. the, um, so just to wrap up, I think what's interesting to think about in this um, uh, is the trade-off behind these values, right? So I think like valuing decentralization over efficiency is, is a trade-off. Mm -hmm. uh, valuing um, 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 truth over reputation. Mm -hmm. You know, we, uh, uh, you know, and that's a that's a scary one, right? Because you know, you don't really like the idea of doctors being able to find out where people live. Mm. So there are still things where we, you know, but like, you know, if a powerful person is misbehaving, we want to know that. And so mm. uh, I guess I guess you know, so this is a, it's a hard one, but you know, if we really are trying to solve so the question, is truth more important than privacy? You know, uh, and uh, and to what extent? Right. So yes. I mean, all these things are probably have a limiting function. Like there's some levels of efficiency 
and privacy. But on the whole, we have a bias towards uh, truth over privacy and decentralization over efficiency and universality over particularism or tribalism. Um, and um, uh, you know, trying to think in terms of trustworthiness, um, I guess, um, I guess over uh, verification over tradition, right? Is that we, we would rather trust systems that put their assumptions to the test rather than systems that just say, well, these are our traditional values or our tribal values, and therefore you can't question them. Yeah. How do you test those systems? I mean, there's. Sorry? Uh, how do you test them? If, can you test, test Yes, test. Like, uh, will you be testing the, you know, the way that the uh, laws are written and, and, you know, and putting some case in that, you know, automated or, or systematic process to say, oh, yeah, with these circumstances, with this kind of evidence, the person is, or the entity is guilty or not guilty. But you know the answer. So like it's like in computer software, right? You build a program and you build tests to make sure that specific parts of that program application uh, work as expected, right? So you... Uh, you build as you build the, the system. You build an, a parallel system to test it, and that right. works fine in, in code. But in people, in, in systems that involve human beings, that's kind of difficult to test. Right, and that is an excellent question to tee up for next week. All right. So we have a you know a starting point of a set of values, which I'll write up in the notes. And then and there's actually two kinds of testing. I don't know if we get to both of them. One is testing whether different systems, people, values, beliefs, laws, whatever, uh, how they measure up against those values. And then the other part, uh, which is perhaps equally challenging, is testing those values themselves. Are those the right values? Are they encoded properly? Are they actually getting us the emergent behaviors that we intended? And do they have any uh, unintended consequences that actually are? Well, I think the other thing to realize is that you know values are hard and messy. And I think you did a good job articulating some that I think are truly important. Um, but you know we still have kind of an imprecise understanding of them, and so that's another thing that has to be put to the test at some point as well. So, uh, good news is it sounds like we're not going to run out of things to talk about for season two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Great job, Ernest. And uh, talk to you next week. Next week. Thank you, Ernest. All right. Bye, Ernest.